Before Tracy and I moved our family here to Vancouver, most of you know that we lived in Southeast Asia for, for about nine years. And one of the things that made our life interesting on the island was the wide diversity of our friends. We made friends with all kinds of people, from students, social workers, and attorneys, to pastors, missionaries, and seminary professors. Some were foreigners, some were not, some were local. Uh, Some were wealthy and some were poor. But what drew us together was that which we had in common. For all the differences that we did have, there were things that we shared. That's how it usually works, right? We are drawn or gravitate towards people with whom we share common beliefs or activities or interests. So one year we invited a group of fellow Americans to um, celebrate Thanksgiving dinner at our compound. Uh, There were no turkeys on the island uh, that year, so we served barbecue chicken. And a wide variety of people showed up um, to the house. And uh, the one thing that brought us together and that formed the basis of our fellowship, and I'll, I'll put fellowship in quotes, was our common nationality and our common appreciation for one of the traditions of our country. By far, though, the best relationships that we made during those years was not based on nationality or common interests. They were based upon a common faith. The faith that we shared with some of those individuals gave rise to a genuine fellowship, a fellowship that was spiritual and deeper and stronger than anything a group could experience that was bound together merely by their nationality or their love for barbecue chicken. And that exposes some of the differences in the way we use the word fellowship. The Oxford English Dictionary says that fellowship is companionship, company, or friendly association. Well, if that's all that fellowship means, then that Thanksgiving dinner overseas qualifies as fellowship. But for believers... As we'll see in this morning's text, fellowship has a much deeper significance. We return this morning to Philemon. This is Paul's letter to his beloved friend in the city of Colossae. Paul addressed it to Philemon, to Apphia, who we believe is Philemon's wife, to Archippus, who we believe is their son and a leader in the church, and to the small church that meets in Philemon's house. The story behind the letter is that Philemon's slave Onesimus, whose name means useful, stole from Philemon and fled, becoming rather useless to his master. But in God's providence, Onesimus met Paul, who was in prison at the time in Rome, and came to faith in Christ, becoming indeed useful. Paul is now sending Onesimus back to his master and pleading with him to forgive Onesimus and be reconciled to him. That is, he wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. In our first look at Philemon, we saw that Paul's high-level theme of the letter was grace and peace. He introduces that in his opening. 
Paul chooses the words of his greeting purposefully. The grace that brings peace and reconciliation between God and man also brings peace and reconciliation between men. So Paul greets Philemon with grace to you and peace. In our second look at at this letter, we notice that Paul moves from his greeting to a prayer report. Again, the subject of Paul's prayer report is directly connected to what he's going to ask Philemon for. We saw down in verse 21 that Paul expresses his confidence that Philemon will forgive and will reconcile with Onesimus. Paul knows that because of what he knows about his friend Philemon. This short prayer report, verses 4 through 7, tells us about the character of Philemon. The things that mark this man's character are the very things that mark grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation and that give Paul confidence that Philemon will do what is right. We'll put the first two marks on the screen to refresh our memory. Grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation, not only in Philemon, but in us, is marked by faith in the Lord Jesus. We saw two reasons for that. Faith in Christ crucified spurs you, who have been graciously forgiven, to forgive graciously. And faith in Christ crucified frees you from the need to take revenge. You can rest on the promise that the Lord will repay be that in hell or on the cross. Philemon was marked by this kind of faith, so Paul knew that he would forgive and reconcile. The second mark of grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation is love for the saints. And that's simply because of what love does. It forgives. Again, Philemon was known for his love to the saints. There's plenty of evidence for that. So Paul was confident that he would forgive and reconcile. The third mark is what we're going to look at this morning in verses 6 and 7. So if you would, open your Bibles to Philemon. I think you'll find it helpful to be able to see the entire letter at a glance. You'll find Philemon tucked in the back between Titus and Hebrews. And just a quick comment before we jump into our text About four o'clock this morning, I was reviewing my uh, sermon notes, and it dawned on me that this sermon is about fellowship, and there are dozens of things that I left out. This is is not a topical sermon, and so we're going to stick rather close to the text, but this subject of fellowship among believers is so significant that you're going to walk away thinking there's so many things that Tate should have said, and I do wish that I had. But this is not topical. We're going to stick rather close to the text this morning, but I do want you to know that I will include a couple of questions for community groups, because I want, I want our community groups especially to think through what fellowship looks like and all the one another's that we see in the scriptures. So... With that, let's read Paul's prayer report, verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In verse 6, Paul shifts from what he gives thanks to God for to what he asks God for. And he prays that Philemon's sharing of his faith might become effective. Now, this is a difficult verse to translate and to interpret. And that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of the general editor of the English Standard Version, J.I. Packer, and other scholars who comment on these verses. They say that this is the most difficult verse in the letter, but I think that we'll find the overall thrust of the verse very clear. But first, we need to know what Paul means by the sharing of your faith. On the surface, to my ears at least, I think of evangelism when I hear those words. That's how I use them. If I'm looking for an opportunity to share my faith with my neighbor Jim, what I mean is that I'm looking forward to telling Jim about the gospel, to evangelize. That's probably not what Paul means here. The underlying word is one that many of you will be familiar with. If you've been in church for any length of time, you will know this word. It is the Greek word koinonia. The idea of sharing is certainly there, but koinonia includes the idea of participation or communion, and it's most often translated fellowship as the New American Standard Bible does in this verse. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. This then is a fellowship of your faith, a participation or a communion with other believers. When we call the Lord's Supper communion, we're using the word koinonia in that way. We're saying that we participate together in the body and the blood of Christ. That's exactly how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 10.16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation that's the Greek word koinonia. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a koinonia or a participation in the body of Christ? And that gets us very close to the meaning of the word here. Bible scholar G.K. Beale and others believe that Paul's use of the word fellowship here can best be summarized as mutual participation. Mutual participation, and that's the way that we'll take it as well. And that's our third mark. Grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation in Philemon and in us is marked by fellowship. A mutual participation with fellow believers. And here's what we know about this fellowship that Paul has in mind. First, it is a fellowship of faith. That is, your mutual participation with fellow believers arises from your common faith. Your faith or trust in Christ crucified, that Christ died for your sins, is the foundation or the basis of your fellowship. It is the one thing that you all have in common, provided you are in Christ. There are two aspects of this foundation of faith and both are spelled out beautifully for us in the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. It reads like this, All saints 
that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and faith, have fellowship in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. The writers of the confession got that from verses like 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You could also hear the influence of John 1.16. For from His fullness, that is from Christ's fullness in union with Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. That's the first aspect of this foundation of faith. Your union and communion, that is your fellowship with Christ. You learned about that in our last equipping hour. The second aspect of this, of this foundation of faith is our union and communion with one another. The confession continues. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. And they got that from texts like Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And also in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit and the purpose for the common good. You do realize that those two aspects of the foundation of your fellowship, union and communion with Christ and union and communion with one another, is what you affirm every week when you recite the Apostles' Creed. You say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, and the communion of saints. That's the fellowship of the saints. And your faith in Christ crucified is the foundation for that fellowship, which means that fellowship is not grounded in the common ages of your children or in homeschooling or quilting or the Seahawks. Your fellowship is based upon the faith you hold in common with your fellow believers. For all the differences you have, you have the most important thing in common. You've been graciously granted faith and are united with Christ. That's what you hold in common with one another, and that is the very foundation of the gifts and graces in which you mutually participate. So no Thanksgiving dinner with a group of people who only have their nationality in common is not genuine fellowship. No matter how well you get along, or how much fun you have, faith is the foundation of fellowship. Number two, faith also means that you have been born into a new family and therefore have new family relationships, new brothers, new sisters, new fathers, new mothers, and even new children because you have been born into a new covenant relationship with God by faith. This feature is 
everywhere in the letter to Philemon. You simply can't miss it. Paul uses it from the beginning to the end. Listen to this. Verse 1, Timothy, he says, is our brother. Verse 2, Abphia is our sister. Verse 3, don't miss this in Paul's greeting. We didn't talk about it in the first message, but here it is now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. When you were reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, you enter into a new relationship with Him. He doesn't merely break down what separated you from Him. He receives you as sons and daughters. You receive the spirit of adoption. He is our Father. Verses 7 and 20, Paul calls Philemon his brother. Verse 10, Paul calls Onesimus his child and says he became his spiritual father. And in verse 16, Paul calls Onesimus his beloved brother, both to Philemon and to himself. This letter is saturated with the language of new relationships. Your fellowship is based upon a common faith, which also means that you have been born into a new family and have radically new relationships with one another. This might be a good place to interject something that I didn't mention during the introduction to the book of Philemon uh, a few weeks ago. It's about the way Paul opens his letter. And I'm sure you noticed that he addressed it to three people and a church. Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the church that meets in Philemon's house. What's odd about that to the modern reader is that this letter is about a somewhat private matter. Philemon's slave stole from him and then ran away. Paul is asking Philemon to welcome back the runaway slave as a brother in Christ. And yet Paul sends this letter not just to his family, not just to him, but to the church. It was understood that this letter would be read aloud to the church, to everyone. Imagine that. Onesimus would probably be standing there. He brought this letter back. So he's standing there or he's nearby. And they would read the letter aloud and then all eyes would turn to Philemon. And what would Philemon do? Because the whole congregation is wondering. Now that makes us feel a little uncomfortable. We might even think that Paul's trying to manipulate the situation. But that's not what he's doing. The problem is more with our Western notion of privacy. The fellowship of believers was truly a fellowship of family members. As believers, they saw themselves in light of their Christian community. What was a concern for one member was a concern for everyone. They were simply behaving like members of a body. And there's a lot for us to learn from that. It's difficult for us, though, to imagine a letter like this being read to our community group and everybody looking at us wondering, so how are you going to respond? But that's only because we've strayed very far from the biblical idea of Christian fellowship. So faith is the foundation of fellowship itself. Faith is the foundation of new relationships. And third, faith, genuine faith that is, flows forth in love, unity, and generosity. Your faith 
is not static. And I want to show you the links in this little chain. Your faith is not static. It works. Your faith works through love. Or to say it another way, the outworking of your faith is love. For in Christ Jesus, Paul wrote to the Galatians, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. From Colossians, you'll remember that love is that overcoat of Christ-like virtues with which we are to, we are to put on. And it is the virtue which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So faith works through love, and love brings unity, perfect harmony within the body. Love, unity, and now the third link, genuine love is proved by generosity. I get that from 2 Corinthians 8, 8. Paul uses the church in Macedonia as an example of grace-empowered generosity. The joy and the extreme poverty of the Macedonians, oddly enough, overflowed in generosity to the poor in Jerusalem. Paul is encouraging the same grace-empowered generosity in the church at Corinth. And here's what he says. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others, that prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So genuine love is proven by generosity. So the chain looks like this. Your faith works through love. Your love brings unity in the body. And the genuineness of your, faith, of your love is proven by your generosity. And we could add to that chain, but those three links are enough to tell us something about this fellowship of the faith. Henry Scougal, the 17th century Scottish minister, connected it like this using the analogy of a tree. The root of the divine life is faith, and the chief branches are love to God, charity to man, purity, and humility. So genuine fellowship proceeds from a common faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is the foundation of our fellowship, the foundation of new relationships, and the foundation of love, unity, and generosity in the body. If we get that, we can understand what Paul is praying for here. He prays that Philemon's mutual participation with other believers, that mutual participation that proceeds from that kind of faith might produce something, that it might be effective, verse 6, for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. Full knowledge. That means here, both understanding and experience. It's knowledge and practice. It's knowing and wisdom, as Paul says in the parallel passage that we studied last year. Remember his prayer report to the Colossians. It's very similar to this. He prayed that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You can see how similar that is to our text. It's just expanded. Spiritual wisdom is the application of the knowledge of God's will. It's a putting into practice what God desires and what He requires of us. You know there's a big difference between 
mere head knowledge and true wisdom, putting that knowledge into practice. It's like the old adage, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Paul is praying that Philemon's fellowship with other believers might produce spiritual knowledge and put that spiritual knowledge into practice. For what purpose? Well, Paul seems to be intentionally vague here and broad. He says that it's for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, or as others translate it, every good thing that is among us. These are all the good things that fellowship brings. It, it is the gifts and the graces from God in which we mutually participate. It is the good that pleases and builds up your neighbor, Romans 15.2. It is the good that you are to do to everyone, especially to fellow believers, Galatians 6.10. And it is the good that does not repay evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. It is faith flowing forth in good fruit, in love, in unity, and in generosity to our brothers and sisters. So, we don't gather for fellowship here on Sundays or in community, community groups merely to increase our head knowledge. We gather in fellowship to put into practice all the good things that we have among us. And that can only happen in the context of Christian fellowship, which means that we need one another. If we're going to have true Christian fellowship, we need one another. Of course, that kind of fellowship that Paul's describing here means that you're going to get close to your brothers and sisters. And when you get close to them, you begin to realize how messed up they are. They don't have it all put together. They're just like you, and they're just like me. We need to be honest about this kind of fellowship. It's messy, and it's difficult. It reminds me of a poem I once heard. Supposedly, this was scribbled on a paper and left under a pew in a, in a chapel in Edinburgh, and it goes like this, to dwell above with saints in love, oh my, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> Nevertheless, the messiness and the joy of fellowship is what we have been called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's that kind of fellowship that marks grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, before I make that connection, I want to finish this verse and point out one more feature of this kind of fellowship. This fellowship proceeds from faith. It produces good fruit. And as we see in the last phrase of verse 6, it points to Christ. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us or among us for the sake of Christ. Every good thing for the sake of Christ, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that includes our fellowship. 
The Apostle Peter expresses this kind of Christ-glorifying fellowship in words that I find simply poetic. Listen to this. He's going to describe the kind of fellowship, the mutual participation that Paul is speaking of here, and then he's going to point us to the glory of God. This is in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And now what's the purpose of this kind of fellowship, he says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Your mutual participation in the gifts and graces that are yours in Christ have one goal, the glory of Christ. When you sign up for a meal train, yes, You are loving your brothers and sisters. Yes, it is part of fellowship, but that's not your ultimate goal, the bringing of a meal. The goal of your full knowledge of every good thing, including that meal train, is the glory of Christ. It is for the sake of Christ. When you spend your weekend putting a new roof on a fellow believer's home, It is for the glory of Christ. Those gifts and graces came from him, and when we mutually participate in them, he gets all the glory. And the world around us takes notice. As the Puritan Matthew Henry said about this little phrase, he said that the fruit of love and faith in this kind of fellowship was so that light might shine before men, that they, seeing their good works, might be stirred up to imitate them and to glorify their Father who is in heaven. He's quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Then he says, good works must be done, not of vainglory to be seen, yet such as may be seen to God's glory and the good of men. So the glory of Christ is the goal of this kind of fellowship, which means that in our fellowship and with one another, we all share a common goal. We have a common faith and we have a common goal. In every good thing in which we are mutually participating, we arm in arm are in pursuit of the glory of Christ. That is our ultimate end and the good of each other is our subordinate end. And all of that's just a fancy way of saying that we seek to glorify Christ by seeking the good of one another. What a beautiful picture of the body of Christ in motion. Each part working properly makes the body grow so that it'll build itself up in love. That is a genuine Christian fellowship. And that's about the best I can do with the time we have Bible scholar Douglas Moo gives a helpful paraphrase of this verse. Philemon, I am praying that the mutual participation that arises from your faith in Christ might become effective in leading you to understanding and put into practice all the good that God wills for us 
and that is found in our community and do all of this for the sake of Christ. That's much better than I'm capable of. As we wrap this up, let's ask this question. What's the connection between all of that and the situation with Philemon and Onesimus? Here it is. Now that Onesimus is a believer, he and Philemon are both united by faith to Christ. And that's the foundation of the kind of fellowship we see in this text. They're both in union and communion with Christ. Therefore, they have a foundation, a motive, a model, and a fountain of grace for their union and communion with one another. Their faith is also the foundation of a new relationship between them. They are no longer defined by the master-slave relationship. Philemon and Onesimus are first and foremost now brothers in Christ, and that governs how Philemon must respond. Paul then is confident that Philemon will forgive and reconcile with Onesimus because their common faith means that they're brothers. This offense is now a family matter. Their faith in Christ is also, as we saw, the foundation of love and unity and generosity. Faith works through love. Love brings unity to the body, and the proof of genuine love is generosity. And Paul knows that the outworking of Philemon's faith will be love for Onesimus, and love forgives, and love seeks reconciliation, as we learned in the last message. Paul knows that Philemon's love will seek unity in the body of Christ where there has been conflict. And for there to be unity, there must be forgiveness and the seeking of reconciliation. And the proof of Philemon's genuine love will be seen in his generosity toward Onesimus, who, as we know, likely owed him because of what he stole. And this is where verse 7 comes in. I know you were thinking, he's only going to get through one verse this morning. This is where verse 7 comes in. As Paul closes his prayer report, he gives us the ground or the basis of his prayers for Philemon. He says, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Paul here recognizes the genuineness of Philemon's love. His generosity to the saints proves it. By allowing them to meet in his home, and doubtless in many other ways, Philemon has refreshed, that is, he has brought rest to the tired or troubled hearts of his fellow believers. And Paul gets a lot of joy from hearing those reports. And those demonstrations of the genuineness of his love gives Paul confidence that Philemon will do what he is about to ask. Even though he doesn't mention it yet, he's laying the foundation for his appeal even in this prayer report. So those are the three marks of grace-empowered forgiveness and reconciliation. Faith in the Lord Jesus, love for the saints, and genuine fellowship. And remember, those marks are more than just insight into the character of Philemon. They are the marks and the motives of all believers who seek to live out the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me leave you with an exhortation. 
If you have in your life a brother or sister who you need to forgive or with whom you need to seek reconciliation, I encourage you to press the gospel truths of this third mark into your mind and into your heart. Your faith in Christ crucified is the foundation of your fellowship with that person. Your union and communion with Christ is your source of empowering grace that will enable you to forgive and to be reconciled. Your relationship with that person is that of a brother or sister in Christ. And that is the spiritual relationship that should define your response to having been wronged. And your faith in Christ crucified is the foundation of love, unity, and generosity. Let your faith work through love. Let your love bring unity to the body. And let the genuineness of your love be proven by your generosity to that brother or sister. So, for the sake of love forgive and be reconciled. For the sake of unity in the body, forgive and be reconciled. And for the sake of Christ, do everything you do. And my prayer is that the sharing of your faith, you know what that means now, the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is among us for the sake of Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, these, uh, these are difficult words, and uh, I pray that, that you'll use them, use them in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. Father, I do pray that where there is an unwillingness to forgive or an unwillingness to reconcile, Father, I pray that you would help us, especially with our brothers and sisters, to press these truths into our minds and hearts. Father, we want to we want to have genuine fellowship with one another. We want unity in the body. Father, we want love to flow from one member to another. Father, we want to be a body that is working well and growing up in love. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict, and Father, that you would help us to tap into the grace that will enable us to forgive, and that will enable us to be reconciled with our, our brothers and sisters. Father, I ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.